Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meet Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, episode number 105. Today we have Dr. Kelly Munger and Megan Marcus of Fuel Ed, a nonprofit organization that builds educator emotional intelligence and relationship-driven schools. Before we get to the questions, I just want to give a bit of background on our guest today. Megan Marcus holds a bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of California at Berkeley and master's degree in psychology from Pepperdine University and in education policy and management from Harvard University. She served as lead researcher for the book, The Social Neuroscience of Education, Optimizing Attachment and Learning in the Classroom, which explores how teacher-student relationships trigger neuroplasticity and optimal academic, social, and emotional learning. Her experiences working on this book while training to be a counselor served as both inspiration and the research foundations for Fuel Ed. Dr. Kelly Munger crafts and executes research projects that enhance our understanding of social and emotional development in educational environments while also bridging the gap between science and practice. What a perfect match for the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast. Welcome, Megan and Kelly. Thank you so much. It's fabulous to be here. Thank you. We are so thrilled to be here. Well, when I first saw that you were both focused on educator SEL at Fuel Ed, and my career began as a classroom teacher over 20 years ago with a classroom of behavioral students that I couldn't manage, I knew I had to speak with you to find out what exactly you're doing at Fuel Ed that's having such a significant impact on our school. So thank you so much for being here today. This is going to be a really powerful conversation. So let's just start right off the bat. I know how important educator SEL is, not only personally because of that beginning intro as a teacher, not knowing what to do. Uh, They left out these emotional intelligence training skills in my teacher training program back then. And then I'm interviewing all these experts and they all have a focus on educator SEL. But can you tell me more about why you decided to focus on working directly with educators instead of students with Fuel Ed? Absolutely, Andrea. Thank you so much for a great question. So I think when I when I started Fuel Ed back in, in 2012, as you mentioned, the inspiration was very much the work done on the social neuroscience of education, which really explored the science behind why relationships drive learning in classrooms and in schools. And so what really came to a focus for me there was just that the best teachers, the best school leaders, the best districts are all really at their core, the best at building relationships. It's relationships that in early childhood and throughout the lifespan shape who we are. And yet I was really surprised to find that despite the importance and power of relationships, not only drive academic learning to shape development, emotional and social development, even to heal trauma, it's not part of teacher preparation. Mm -hmm. And so when I recognized that gap, it was essentially a moment where looking out on the field, social emotional learning as a concept was definitely growing in popularity, but so much of it was focused on what teachers could do to or with students. 
How can you help students develop self-management? How can you help students develop self-regulation? How can you help students develop self-awareness? Our goal at Fulet is the same, certainly the same outcomes. We wanna see students grow and flourish. But when you look at what the research says, the number one way to develop social and emotional outcomes in students is through a relationship. It's not through a curriculum. And the way to develop a secure relationship is through a secure adult. And so that's why we focus on educators, their own emotional health, their emotional well-being, their interpersonal skills as the key driver for those relationships that ultimately lead to these wonderful outcomes for students. That's powerful because I think my first SEL webinar that I attended back in 2016, I started to listen to these webinars to find out more about what districts were doing across the country as I was gaining interest in this. I thought I better find out what's going on. And there was this assistant superintendent out of Chicago that I've now interviewed on the podcast. And back then he was doing this concept called Significant 72. It was all about building relationships in our schools. And now that's turned into a book and he's got that program running in schools across the US and Canada. But back then it was just, he saw the need for relationship building and started to implement it and seeing all these results. So that's incredible that you mentioned relationships, one of the key SEL competencies as to why you started to implement this with educators. Yeah, and I, I, can I add something onto that as well? Yeah. Um, if we if we think about how really relationships and regulation or the way that we get safe, social, calm, and grounded, and um, we think about that as a parallel process in the classroom, right? So a teacher's ability to be calm, grounded, and safe impacts a student's ability to feel calm, grounded, and safe. And so really, if a teacher is struggling with their own regulation, with their own sense of safety in the world or in their classroom, if they're struggling with a lot of stress, whether it's in their um, history, in their personal life, or in their life at school, of course, um, then you have a disruption in the classroom in terms of how safe a student might feel. And that's another reason why we focus on, on, the, on the whole educator, right, on helping the self of the educator actually reach, um, helping educators reach their potential developmentally um, and to be able to show up feeling safe and social, ready to connect, ready to help people grow. So very important. So when I first launched this podcast, I was just telling you as, as we first met, I had actually created a course that was going to be an SEL course for educators. And I was actually working with a publisher on it. And that just didn't go the, the direction I was wanting it to go. And I thought instead of just ditching this idea, I launched a podcast with this outline that I had. And the very first lesson that I had was the why behind implementing an SEL program in your district or an emotional intelligence program in the workplace. But with all your research, what do you think is the best starting place when it comes to helping educators or people in the workplace grow socially and emotionally? Wonderful. 
So I think um, when I think about growing our own social emotional intelligence, I think about, okay, well, where did it all start? How did we start becoming formed socially and emotionally? Um, so attachment is a field of, of research that is very much the foundation and the core of FUELED's work. And what it really says is that our earliest relationships shape our social and emotional development. And so a lot of people might say, well, what if I didn't have secure early relationships? Like so many of us uh, didn't have these kind of a perfect, secure family environments or communities or uh, just different uh, circumstances throughout our life. Am I doomed? Fortunately, research shows that regardless of one's early uh, development, we can actually change at any time throughout the lifespan. We can change our brain, we can change our behavior. So I think that's the entry point for educators, realizing that yes, if you didn't necessarily have that early attachment early in life, it does impact the way you form relationships. You will be impeded in building secure relationships with students, but the hopeful thing is that our brain remains plastic and able to change throughout the lifespan. So then the question becomes, well, how do we do that? How do we change our social emotional, um, our social emotional competencies? How do we develop into more secure people so that we can build these relationships that help others thrive? And so what the research has shown is that there are a couple secret ingredients, the secret sauce. Um, one of them is to explore their self and their story through reflection and relationship. Because research shows that those adults who had early insecure experiences, but later in life grow to become secure, they have a history of unpacking their story and doing it in the context of a safe relationship. That alone, developing that coherent narrative, a story of your life, the way in which your early experiences shaped you, that alone can actually be completely transformative to your own social emotional growth and the way you build relationships. And I'll ping Kelly to share a bit more since this is a neuroscience focused podcast as to why a uh, story and these safe relationships actually do change the brain. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, without getting too deep into it, um, I, I think the best way to describe what you're talking about, Megan, is simply that um, when you can walk someone through a reflective process, you're actually asking them to participate in metacognition, right? You're asking them to think about their thinking, to think about their internal experience, to think about even their memory and how they hold a view of both their story and themselves um, really inside. And that that actually drives how they live their patterns of relating um, the way that even they perceive themselves in subsequent relationships beyond childhood, beyond early childhood. And so um, what's happening when we can provide, carve out that really safe space where um, an educator or anyone has the experience of feeling seen and, and really understood while they unpack that history, they're essentially... Um, almost, it's almost like a bank transfer, right? They're moving this past experience into a new experience that is more about relation, relational resonance, about this sense of, of feeling safe, seen, soothed, as Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson call it. And so um, that experience of security transfers, right? This historical experience of being unsafe into a new experience of safety, um, and really what we try to do is to, 
is to help not only teachers have that initial experience with our trainings, but even beyond that, how do we help create cultures where that's just a regular part of the process of working somewhere? Um, that, that we often have these moments of metacognition where we can trust that the person sitting across from us has the social and emotional skills to mirror us and to give us that resonant experience of being seen, right? And those mirror neurons firing, firing, firing in the sense of, oh, I'm connected in the world. I'm not alone. Um, and so, of course, we know that whatever fires together, wires together in the brain over time. And so that new experience of being seen can become um, a new pathway versus the old experience of feeling unseen or alone. So of course I'm bringing in Dan Siegel and to, to as you're talking in my head and I'm thinking name it to tame it. Is that the whole idea is that when you've got a story in your head, once you know your history, you've made sense of your past, it's not upsetting anymore once you've got it out there you've named it it shouldn't bother you anymore so you should be able to move forward into being a more happy healthy person that that story is the past right is that how it works yeah I think that's a big part of it Andrea but I would say that um there is honest personal responsibility on educators to unpack their own story recognize their triggers understanding ways in which they are reacting in relationships today based on past trauma. But what I think really differentiates the way we think about it at Fulet is it's not an individual experience. Someone can't go do a, just do a worksheet, you know, fill out a worksheet or journal about their past and then, all right, now you should feel okay because you've named it. No, it's one thing to tell your story and be aware, but you need a receptacle, someone to receive you in listening to your story. So that's why what we do is we help people not only tell their stories, get more in touch with themselves so that they can name their experiences, but we also help and support educators in learning to listen deeply to other stories. Ultimately, if every educator had a person that could listen to them in a deep and almost therapeutic fashion, mm -hmm. then we can all um, heal and support each other on this growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It makes complete sense. And it also makes sense to me why self-awareness would be one of the most important and most listened to topics that, that I've ever done, because everybody wants to become more self-aware. Would, would you not agree that this is a big part relationship, self-awareness? Yeah, there's somewhat of a paradox at work there, right? Because when we grow in self-awareness, we almost simultaneously grow in others' awareness. And so um, we've been using a, throwing a phrase around uh, for the last year that we call story sight, which is the idea of if I can see myself with compassion through the lens of my own story, I'm much, much, much more likely to see my colleagues, my partner, my children, and my students through the lens of their stories. Mm -hmm. and, and so if you think about um, developing self-awareness as a way to also connect you to other people. Um, it's this really cool paradox, but it, even in our, it, we did some qualitative research last year and teachers told us that more than many times that I'm seeing my students through a different lens. Um, I might've been annoyed with that child's misbehavior a year ago. And now I'm thinking about what happened to him? Where, what's going on with him? I wonder what the story is here. 
And I think a prerequisite to that is to be able to look at your own story mm-hmm. and, just, and to be curious about yourself and, and then to move into compassion. Oh, that's why I do that. Of course I do that. That's how I survived. Um, and when we can name that compassionately, when that fierce honesty, we're much more likely to be able to let it go as well. And that's that healing process that Meg's talking about. Um, but man, if someone's sitting across from you and nodding with warm eyes um, and mirroring what you're saying, then I think there um, is, is a lot of hope in that and a lot of powerful, almost fast growth that happens. I think Megan, you would agree. We see that in our trainings when our teachers sit in the circle and tell their stories. Um, powerful experience to both tell your story, but also to listen to those stories. Yeah. I'll never that. forget. I'll never forget my first time in a teacher story in a teacher story circle. Yeah. It, it's powerful. I think there's a tendency in the field of education to say, just like we say, let's focus on social emotional development of students through these SEL curriculums also sort of in the trauma informed space, let's focus on understanding trauma, students trauma, recognizing the signs, understanding that all behavior is a form of communication and all that's true and valuable knowledge for educators. But what Kelly's pointing to is the best way to to learn how to be trauma responsive to students is to first heal and grow and recognize your own trauma. Because until you can do that, you actually are limited in the degree that you can provide empathy and attuned responsiveness to other students if you haven't quite done that for yourself yet. So that's why we really believe that a trauma-informed educator is an educator that's really looked at and healed from their own trauma. Definitely, and I feel like I first started to see that. It was very clear to me when I started to study Dr. Lori Desitel and her work on trauma. And there were pages in her book where I saw, well, no wonder my students were misbehaving. You know, back then I would be like, oh, these students are terrible. I got the worst class. And yeah, it had nothing to do with the students. It was completely 100% me. And I see it now. You know, they were reacting to me, not knowing what to do, um, not being able to take control of the situation. So it was you know, it was unfortunate that that was my first experience. Maybe if my first experience was not that, it, I might have still been in the classroom. But uh, I do think, Andrea, you're pointing to a core issue, really broad issue in the field of education right now is that because there's this massive mismatch between a teacher's training and then their task. Teachers enter their kind of training with this enthusiasm, desire to change lives, to connect, to build relationships, to develop students. And then oftentimes the training really focuses on content knowledge and pedagogy. And then when they enter the field, naturally they feel like, well, I must be a big failure because I was trained for this and I don't feel prepared at all. And oftentimes teachers either will move to blaming themselves, kind of feeling like that sense of failure and that sense of perfectionism and that shame, that deep shame, or maybe blaming the students. Like you said, you had that um, sensation as well of what's wrong with these kids. When in reality, it's a systemic issue. The fact that we truly need to redefine, um, re-ima- redefine what teachers really, really do, what they are, what they can be, and reimagine educator preparation to more wholly support the interpersonal, the deeply interpersonal and deeply emotional realities of teaching and learning. Definitely, definitely. Now, let's bring it to what happened last year with the pandemic. And, and I want to mirror something that happened 
years ago, because I'm thinking about trying to make sense of, of the pandemic to maybe back when my sister was a teacher, um, she's retired now, but she was a French teacher in Toronto. And they suddenly went from um, doing these graded report cards that she hand wrote to now she has to do everything online. And she did not understand how to go online. So it was really challenging for her. Like everything you said, being a perfectionist, everything was done a certain way. And suddenly now you've got to enter your grades online. It was very challenging, just like when the educators had to get thrown into online learning without that same training and background. I saw the parallel. But, um, you know, thinking about what happened with the pandemic, how do you see this year impacting the emotional lives of our educators? Well, Megan knows I live with a veteran educator. My husband has been teaching him um, for 20 years now, 21 years, actually. Um, and, and so I do feel like I've been observing um, really up close and personal um, the toll that this year has taken on, on the emotional lives of educators. And, you know, I would just start with saying, um, as we're saying, being a teacher is already a heavy lift. It's, um, it's a highly emotional, highly interactive, highly relational job. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, I think this is a really awesome story to demonstrate how powerful teachers can be. But my husband received a package of father's day cards from his students, um, to thank him for his investment in their life. And so if you can imagine, he's, in a way, parenting 40, he's a high school teacher of 45 students at a time. Um, and, and so to do, to go at what he's gone through this year, I think the one thing maybe we haven't been talking about enough is the grief that teachers are experiencing. Um, because a lot of teachers really, 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 really love teaching. And they, most teachers really, 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 I could choke up, love their students. Um, and they pour their hearts out. And so every teacher um, who's gone through this this year has experienced loss because they've lost the, the safety and the security of, um, of, of the classroom, right? Of having this safe haven environment to offer their students. Um, and instead they've been put into this almost awkward or um, like you said, brand new, unknown. There was no practice, no dress rehearsal, right? It happened like that. Um, and so they weren't even able to bridge from the past to the future. They just had to change overnight. And so they lost that sense of safety, safe haven. Um, and a lot of teachers lost contact with their students, right? The kind of contact they're used to. I see you. I give you warm eyes. You see my whole face, right? I even pat you on the shoulder. We do high fives. Um, I see you and I, I get to actually get my eyes on you and I can really tell how you're doing. Um, whereas, um, my neighbor who is a special educator, um, she can't get her students to turn their videos on someday. She can't even see them through the screen. Right. Um, and those students are, are handling a lot of stress. Um, and so I think it's the loss of, of your profession and then also the loss of contact with your students. Um, a loss of competence and confidence, right? Um, certainly my husband would just say, I, I don't, I don't know how to do this. This isn't what I do. This isn't, he said that so many times. This isn't what I do. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so, you know, I can hear him in the hallway some days trying to teach physics and robotics through the screen. And he just wants to be in the lab blowing stuff up. Um, and so I think there's a loss of identity there. Um, and then of course we have to, we have to throw in there that, that teachers are also dealing with personal crisis, personal loss, and a huge increase in personal responsibility of, um, having their own kids at home, trying to learn while they're trying to teach while maybe another spouse is, let's say an essential worker out of the home. Um, or maybe they're single parenting and trying to parent while teach while teaching. Um, and so the, the amount of stress that you, I would say that most of teachers nervous systems would be fried by now, right? Because instead of experiencing what I would call the green zone, right? The safe and social regulated space every day is a red zone space. I'm anxious. I'm amped up. I'm overwhelmed. Um, and we know that that has a toxic effect on the body. Um, and so in the midst of even the uncertainty we're experiencing even today, um, what will it be like for teachers to go back into the classroom when things do become safer and more open? How will they have recovered from what this year did to their nervous systems um, and to their bodies? And I'm even hearing because I get a chance to work with districts and people from all over the place that let's say California, LAUSD is already making plans for what virtual will look like, not just this year, but into next year. So the this is not just going to end in this year, just keeping the mind open as to how do we transition these skills online, self-care, um, making this priority because this is not appearing to be going away anytime soon. Right. Right. That's exactly right. Um, and, and even when, um, people do return to school, we are, it's a different way of going to school, right? There will still be masks. There will still be distancing and there will still be students and teachers who have been through trauma and stress for an entire year. Right. Um, so even at the return, I think that we have to be really aware um, of what we're returning to. It's not the old world. Right. Well, what do you think educators will need in order to address the large scale trauma and stress that they've experienced? How, how, you, how could you help them with your program? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot we can say there, Meg. I, I'll let you jump in after me, but um, I think that I actually asked my husband this question and it was really easy for him to answer, um, really needing his leaders, the leadership to attune to, validate, empathize with what teachers have been through. First and foremost, um, helping our leadership to understand how to help teachers feel seen. Um, and certainly that's what our training is designed to do quite, quite it's our direct goal in, in the instruction we provide. Um, and then beyond that, really, I think this is a turning point in some ways, right? Because trauma-informed SEL kind of used to be um, more of a fringe interest in education, right? On, sort of on, on the skirts of town, we're allowed in, but we're like not the center of attention. And that's really changed this year, which I think is, I guess, a silver lining. Um, 
But I think that what we've learned through our work is that often teachers go through our work and, and they're like, wow, this is amazing. So transformative. Now what? How can, how can we take this um, into our culture? And how can we make our schools places where colleagues see, see one another and make each other feel safe? And so I think that um, not only will teachers need all that empathy and validation, but I think that they're going to need time and space carved out for them specifically for the purpose of building practices around relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, one system that we use, um, we call stewardship. We use it at fuel ed internally in our culture. And this is very simple, but for an hour a week, everyone at fuel ed, um, has a time where they're being listened to and seen. So we switch, um, we have a pair for six months and Meg and I were pairs last year. And basically once a week, we would get on the phone and just digest our lives (laughs) with one another. Um, knowing and trusting that Megan has the skills to help me feel seen in her because she um, has empathy skills. Um, and so I could depend on that time to know that I'm going to have some, some way um, to process what's going on with my life every week. We think that that's a very scalable, um, feasible solution for schools. Um, and that kind of time that if we can carve out time for secure, the experience of secure relationships, right? It's not just an idea that's out in the clouds. Um, it's a teachable skill and um, something that you can actually carve out an hour for. We think that would have a powerful impact on the recovery of teachers next year. Um, and actually, I think it's probably more of a, re- a more resonant solution than you know, just telling teachers, make sure you're doing self-care. Um, that, that statement, I think some teachers even experience that as dismissive um, because it's asking teacher, go take care of yourself. Um, you know, and, and I think a lot of people think, oh, a bubble bath or <laughs> a massage. Um, and that's really not what we're talking about here, even though bubble baths and massage can be really good for the nervous system. I'm very supportive of them. Um, but we know that if a teacher feels seen inside her building or his building, or school, school building, that they're much more likely um, to be able to thrive in that environment and to be able to be more regulated. Um, what Would you add anything to that, Meg? I thought that was beautiful, Kelly. Yeah, I think um, we're big advocates for counseling for educators. And so if districts have that um, resource available through HR, making sure that's prominent for educators and they know how to access it, how to choose a counselor. We have some great resources on our website that can guide a district leader in guiding educators to destigmatize the use of counseling and psychotherapy that can help folks not only unpack their personal histories, but um, de-stress and self-regulate. And it's really the same concept that Kelly is speaking to. We all need a safe place to feel seen. And so whether that's through going to counseling Uh, or psychotherapy or building a system, a peer-to-peer support system that's Mm -hmm. that like like FUELED's stewardship that we do internally and we also teach and support schools and districts to build this system. Um, I do think space for relationships is absolutely essential and it's only school and district leaders that have the power to make that time and space. 
This is very powerful because I'm thinking about what you're doing now and making an impact. And let's just go back a couple of years ago. I actually entered a policy contest because there was all this funding that was going to go towards these causes and education. And I was so passionate about the fact that I had such a challenging time in education that I thought I'm going to write a paper about teacher burnout. And so I entered this policy contest and my premise was, uh, let me just read you the, the beginning part. It was that teaching has become a high stress occupation leading to educator burnout, demoralization in the profession and eventual instructor dropout. And it actually created a cost to the US at 7.3 billion with all the training that needed to, to occur. So as I got into this topic, I got even more into it. I thought, you know, in the beginning, I just wanted to create something and submit it in this contest. But then I started to see the research that was going into it. I started to meet people like Kimberly Schonert Reichel out of the University of British Columbia her study on educators, cortisol, increasing student cortisol. And it was just a powerful experience. My paper did not win the contest, but it brought me such awareness in, in the, um, with the whole idea of stress. And we've talked a little bit about it here, but um, what specifically do you think leaders could do to help teachers with this big problem? Because it, it's way, um, more significant than I even thought when I looked at the money that's going into educator burnout. Yeah. So I think that, um, you just gave me a blank check question, right? Like I have all the money and resources in the world <laughs> to make this happen. Right. Okay. Uh, I really think that, um, my, my first instinct there is first, 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 we need more leaders to do the self-work mm -hmm. Um, I think about some of our um, participants who've gone on to become powerful leaders um, and create really innovative cultures of secure attachment. And they tell us they were only able to do that when they began to see how much they changed through the self-work. Um, and so and that's sort of a vague answer, but it really is. Uh, if you're a principal, go to therapy, mm -hmm. um, truly, and um, allow yourself that space to grow your self-awareness, um, to grow your compassion for your own story, right? Because educators want to follow strong, compassionate, empathetic leaders, um, and, and so I think about how, um, uh, I have a friend in Boston who went through one of our empathy workshops and it's very simple. She began, she just began to use mirroring in a very intentional way. Um, and she, she left me a message recently through the pandemic. This has been the most powerful practice because I can't solve this for my teachers. I can't solve school closures. I can't solve a pandemic. But I, for the first time, feel 100% confident that when a teacher comes to me with a problem, they're going to feel validated. They're going to feel seen. And the paradox of, of empathy, right, is that it, we're empowering people to solve their own problems at that point. Um, because she's, we know that when someone feels seen and, and grounded and regulated, they become more creative, mm -hmm. right? And so 
she sees her teachers adjusting to the, to the, the challenges when they feel grounded in that secure relationship with, with their administrator. Um, and so, you know, of course, I, I, I want us to carve out time and money for counseling, for systems of care, like we talked about the stewarding practice. Um, but also, I want every administrator in the world, I won't just say America, um, to have empathy and mirroring skills and to have some degree of self-awareness of their own story so that they can use story sight to be curious and empathetic about their educators and the problems that they're facing. That's a great starting point because I think if I had that going back to knowing what my experience was like and I would press the buzzer on the wall and say, help, and no one would come. So, you know, sometimes someone would come from down the hall, but it, there was just not the support there. This poor first year teacher not knowing how to handle things. There wasn't, I, you know, was loosely partnered with uh, somebody else, but not, there was no strategies in place. So having a solid strategy of where someone could go, if they're saying I'm feeling overwhelmed and that I don't know what to do here, what should I do? That would have helped immensely. Yeah. I'm pretty floored every time, Andrea, we at Fuel Ed, we host um, online since the pandemic, these processing spaces for educators to come and feel heard. So they come and they share all the stressors, what's going on in their life personally and professionally. And we have a facilitator present that really is all about helping them feel seen and heard. And that's it. <laughs> I am so shocked every single time during the closeout of those for the overflowing of gratitude that's coming from these teachers where they're getting this tiny little blip of feeling seen. And it just makes me think we have such a deprivation. People are starved for feeling seen for feeling like they could bring their whole selves and um we need more spaces where educators can do that and we need more skillful uh practitioners of helping people feel heard so that every educator can have a, a place and so a five minutes of empathy from a stranger doesn't feel like this monumental shift i mean that's just sad that's just sad that that uh we are so 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 starved for that that it feels just so um, profound when it's such a small little crumb. Yeah, well said. So I'm sure you've heard stories like mine and I heard you guys had mentioned about a story of a veteran teacher who always loved teaching and they told you most recently that after this past year, they actually hate their job now. And probably I remember how it felt. I was crossing off the days until summer. I was so stressed out. I would be like, okay, with 30 more days left. And, and that's just not how it's supposed to be. But um, what are your most innovative ideas for restoring teachers and preventing them from leaving the field? Right. Um, I'm just putting myself... Um, I just want to take a moment for a little empathic mirroring and thinking about that story. And for any of the teachers or administrators um, who are listening, maybe, and just say, wow, um, you must be exhausted. You must be tired. Um, you've poured out so much. And in a way, um, you've probably done so quietly um, and without a ton of, of time and space for processing or recognition 
Um, and I think for a lot of educators this year has felt like, I don't even know how to do this. I'm not good at this. Um, I never would have done that. This is not what I signed up for. I've heard that actually from my husband. Um, and this sense of um, exhaustion, burnout, um, and maybe even fear, right? That with, with the loss of identity comes, comes fear, I think. And so I just want to mirror that back. Um, because if that teacher were sitting beside, if she were sitting in my chair right now, I'm a, I'm a therapist uh, on the side. I don't know if that was mentioned earlier. She was sitting in a chair and I was trying to listen well. Um, I would really want her to just feel seen and honored for the work that she did this year. Um, actually think that paradoxically, that would be the, the, the most honoring path for her to stay in teaching would be for her to just get the time and space to cry about it, to be angry about it, to be um, sad about how this year has gone and to have someone listen well to that. Um, and that's, that's not, a, there's no magic to that, right? It's just human connection. Um, but it actually reminds me of Liesl Eberson science where she talks about the fourth stress response. Um, after fight, flight, and freeze, we have flock. <laughs> and that's the idea that humans find safety together um, through this idea of collective exchange of resources and care and empathy. And so I would want that teacher to feel that someone was flocking with him or her um, as he or she makes decisions about the future um, and that they wouldn't be alone with that, that, um, ambivalence about this career that I once loved that feels completely turned upside down now. I think I'll add just from a systems perspective, we as a nation and as a world, as Kelly said, need to think about how we can meet this moment. As she said earlier, trauma-informed social emotional learning, we've all been through trauma now. There's no one person that hasn't experienced the trauma of COVID. Mm -hmm. We are all burnt out right now. We've mm -hmm. all been stressed out of our minds. This isn't a fringe thing anymore. And so how can we say, let's unite and leverage the fact that teachers have this incredible power to transform the lives of students, to heal trauma, and rally around giving them the support and the training that will actually help them not only survive in their work, but thrive. And so I think it's time for teacher preparation, for district professional development, for school leaders who build policies and practices on the ground to place the social and emotional world of educators at the center, because from that, everything will flow. And I think it, unless you've set foot in a classroom, it's not easy to see even before the pandemic how fast paced those classrooms are. The stress was there to start with. And then this whole thing happened and I just watched my kids teachers and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, it was difficult before. Now I'm just like, I have to do something. So when I saw what you're doing there, Megan, Kelly, I'm just so impressed with what you've built. Um, Megan, you, you were inspired to create this. What, what made you and how did you find Kelly? 
Okay, great question. So as I mentioned, um, my, actually, my first professional aim was to be a therapist. I was always really drawn to people and relationships and the power of relationships to heal um, through folks doing that, that inner work. So I thought I'll be a clinical psychologist. And that was my path. All of that changed when I had the amazing opportunity to work with Dr. Lou Casalino, mm -hmm. who really introduced me to the field of interpersonal neurobiology and this idea that it's really relationships that shape our development throughout the lifespan. And at the moment that I met Dr. Lou Casalino at the Learning in the Brain conference, he was about to start work on this book, invited me to be a lead researcher on it. And I spent two years really becoming enthralled with this uh, idea that educators could completely transform lives, that they spend more time with kiddos than the best parents can even. And um, I was really, really geared up about, okay, yeah, so how can we make sure that we're utilizing educators in this way? I was shocked to find that it wasn't part of their training, but at the same time, because I was training to be a counselor or therapist, I said, but look at this uh, body of work. Look at all of the, the training and support and preparation that we provide counselors. Counselors learn how to mirror emotions. Counselors learn about boundaries. Counselors learn about self-regulation. They also are oftentimes required to do their own personal um, healing, their own personal counseling and exploration because you can't take the person out of the professional when it comes to therapy, but it's the same for teachers. Teachers, you can't not take the person out of the professional because teaching and learning is such an interpersonal endeavor. And so I thought, well, why can't we just adapt or translate the best practices and professional development from this very similarly interpersonal field? And that's where, you know, I got to work trying to uh, bridge the, um, fields of developmental psychology, interpersonal neurobiology, attachment theory, counseling skills uh, for practical use for teachers so that we could develop this unique training that gives teachers the science, teachers and school leaders and district leaders, educators broadly, gives them the science of relationships, that foundation of knowledge, give them the skills to build secure relationships, and then finally help them build that self-awareness necessary to develop relationships. So. I went on to kind of work on the education side of things at Harvard and launched after uh, winning some startup capital from pitch competitions. And then uh, we actually piloted in Houston, Texas in 2012. And I've been growing the team and the organization since then. We've worked with over 14,000 educators. And um, Kelly and I met, I think, because one of her friends reached out to Dr. Casalino. So it comes full circle. Mm -hmm. um, and she started as a trainer at Fuel Ed. And uh, just a couple of years ago, joined on board as uh, our lead in the research and development space. I love it. I love hearing how stories have formed, especially I love seeing people's ideas come into form. So for those people who want to learn more about your programs, you can go to fueledschools.org. And do you want to just highlight a couple of the important workshops? Like what do you do exactly? And I can put this all in as we edit the video. Sure. Um, so our core programming, uh, the kind of our flagship program is called the Whole Educator Collective. And it really allows educators to go on that journey of the science skills and self-awareness necessary to build relationships. Uh, you'll learn foundational knowledge about attachment, trauma, um, and the brain, as well as core skills of empathic listening, genuine communication, and finally, it will give you a really fantastic framework for going on that inner journey, exploring what are your triggers? 
what are, were your early childhood attachment experiences and how are they playing out today in your professional life at work as well as your personal life at home. So that's really our flagship most powerful program. And then of course, for folks who want a, a shorter dose, we have a skills focused programming such as Empathy School where we teach the art and science of effective listening. We teach um, the, those mirroring skills that Kelly spoke to. And uh, that can be a really great foundation if you wanna build a stewardship support system, that peer to peer empathic support within your district or school. And then finally, we have shorter workshops. Um, one example is trauma and transitions. That was developed most recently in response to COVID that can help educators get some basic information about trauma, the impact on the brain and how to help their difficult transitions such as the many transitions we're all experiencing right now. Um, is there anything I'm leaving out, Kelly? Um, we do give occasional webinars that are free that folks could show up for to get a little mini, mini dose of the fuel ed um, heart and spirit. And so if you go to our website, they are always um, being advertised front and center. You can click on the events tab, I think, um, to find out all that we have offered. And so it's very easy to navigate and we'd love to see you over there. We also have an Instagram at fuel ed schools. So check us out. I'll put all of this in the show notes and for people to find both of you is the best place LinkedIn where I found you both or yes we can connect on LinkedIn and there's also contact information on our website perfect well Megan Kelly I want to thank you so much for the work that you've put into fuel ed schools and this is a personal interview for me because I wish I had this when I was a teacher. Things might have been different for me, but uh, hopefully teachers can find you. You're already in schools all over the U.S. making an impact, and I wish you all the best success. I'll be sure to promote you in any way that I can um, to help educators to find you and your programs, and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It was a pleasure and an honor. Yeah, thank you so much for your work as well. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.